You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Kat Montague, a screenwriter and instructor. In this episode, we find out more about the precise, nuanced territory of screenplays, or more specifically, screenplay formatting, that is designed to ensure that a screenplay not only tells an engaging story, but also communicates the more technical details used in film and television productions. Cat provides insights into some of the industry-informed processes of creative writing, including the specialist tasks of a script analyst and a story editor. Cat talks us through the dreaded curse, screenplay formatting for film and television, an educational book that began life as a humble yet purposeful class handout. With a creative and playful approach pitched specifically at a film student audience, the book follows a show-not-tell approach as its self-referencing ghosts and witches tackle their silly mistakes and find ways to improve their own emerging screenplay. In our conversation, we find out how to follow some of the fundamental rules of formatting a screenplay. For example, using particular grammar, punctuation and fonts. Just for laughs, we reverse engineer a typical sitcom script, discover the value of script structure and cliffhangers, and explore a few different ways to format dialogue in a scripted phone conversation. Cat offers a range of useful insights, tips, advice and practical writing activities to guide and support emerging screenwriters on the art of telling a delightful story. Here's my conversation with Cat Montague. I thought we could find out a little bit more about uh, what you're about, where, what you're interested in, what you studied, mm. what, you know, how, how did you kind of come to be where you are now, that type of thing? Well, it's, a, it's kind of a long story. Um, I am half Australian and half British. So my mom was an Aussie and my dad is British. My mom was actually Miss Australia 1956, I think. Um, and she moved to the UK to become a television kind of celebrity, I guess. Um, I ended up doing the opposite. I came to Australia as a young woman and then I ended up living in Thailand and Tokyo And the only thing that was kind of common in my experience through those years was writing. Uh, I was always a writer. I assumed I would become a novelist. um, And that was what I decided to study at university. So I went to university to become a novelist. And while I was there, they make you do all of these other things. You've got to try poetry and you've got to try screenwriting. You have to try all these different things. I tried screenwriting and I loved it. I had always been a big film fan. And, uh, And so writing the screenplays came fairly naturally to me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there are elements about learning screenwriting that are not natural. Like when you write a book, you've read a bunch of books. So it's a relatively easy process to understand. But most people, when they want to write a film for the first time, they have not read a bunch of screenplays. So even while I was a student the first time around, uh, I had this sense that this could be done better. 
<laughs> so what just um, to clarify what what is yeah. the difference like it's we hear, hear that phrase all the time screenplay screenplay right. and everyone knows what yeah. a book is like a novel or a you know exactly what is the difference well, a screenplay is a blueprint for a movie it's not really meant to be read it's meant to be taken to pieces put back together again in a schedule it's used to inform the budget it's used to inform casting it's used to inform production and that's what it's for. So it's a more technical document than a, than a book is. Because a book is a thing, it's finished. Uh, a screenplay is an unfinished film. And, and so it needs to have a lot more information and a lot less detail. Okay, we can find out a little, a little bit more about screenplays and their structure soon. But um, yeah. back, back with you in, in your studies, you kind of, um, you were, I guess, introduced to this concept, but you were, you'd actually had a background of um, a discipline or, a, you know, skills and knowledge in literature, I guess. What was this? What was your qualification or what was your area of study? Um, I, was, I had been writing short stories for quite a few years and then I did an undergraduate degree in creative writing. Um, at that point, I was working as a waitress, but I was writing all the time. I was writing some nonfiction magazine articles, web content, things like that. And I was writing uh, a novella on the side and then I'd started writing screenplays. And the screenplay writing was really the thing that took off for me fairly quickly. Um, I started making short films um, and kind of connecting with the film and television community here in Vancouver, Canada, uh, which is where I live. Um, and it became a really big part of my life. And I very quickly became a script analyst and story editor. So that job, uh, script analysts read a screenplay one time. They basically read scripts for money. Um, and story editors work with other writers, helping them to get their screenplays ready for production. And what do they do so like, was, when, you, when they're so reading it for money? What are they doing? Yeah. Well, what they're doing is they read a script and then they write detailed notes. So someone like me, I would write a title section, a log line, a synopsis, which is a single page, and then maybe eight pages of notes. Uh, I also sometimes give the writer margin notes as well. So it's a fairly detailed analysis, what's working in that script and what isn't working, and what needs work. Um, so it's, it's, uh, that's kind of a one-time thing. You might do that for a production company or a studio. And story editing is more like an ongoing relationship, like a, like a, like a life coach. <laughs> uh, it's a kind of a good metaphor, except that ex instead of making you a better person, I'm just trying to make your script better. <laughs> so yeah, I'm um, assuming so you were enjoying all of this at the time. You kind of yeah, I mean, I did. I fell into it by mistake. You know, um, people just kept dropping off scripts and and giving me things to read, and it became a professional part of my life. Like I started making money doing it, um, and it was enjoyable. Like I'm a quite a gregarious person, especially for a writer. So for me, sitting around drinking coffee and talking about other people's screenplays, it's a great job. Uh, there's not many better ones, uh, I don't think. Um, so I came, I came to love it very quickly. And I trained at the Praxis Center for Screenwriters, which is part of the Simon Fraser University. Um, I had a mentor who was a story editor who gave me feedback and made me better at, at the job. Um, and then I started teaching, again, purely by accident. Uh, a friend of mine phoned me and said, oh, my God, I have an audition. Can you cover for me? And I said, well, yeah. I mean, uh, what do I do? And she said, talk about yourself. And I said, for how long? And she said, three hours. 
<laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, I could probably do that. <laughs> and that was my first teaching experience. And then, well, I guess, and then what happened? I guess you, you, you did you yeah. continue the teaching or did you continue oh, yeah. the script editing or? I continue doing both. I'm still a teacher now. In fact, I still teach at that same school. And I've taught at universities and other places as well. But Vancouver Film School was the first place that I taught. And it's I'm a full-time teacher there now. Um, but I also still worked as a story editor for, God, it's got to be 20 years after that. Um, so I work in feature films. I work in television. Um, I've worked as a development executive, kind of giving feedback on television episode scripts. Um, and that kind of thing. And I work, you know, sometimes in Vancouver and sometimes I, I work out of the UK. On occasion, I've worked out of Los Angeles or Toronto at a distance. Um, we, as I'm sure you're aware, in the film and television industry have been working on, on uh, not Zoom, but something like Zoom for a long time. Uh, so for me, um, you know, the, when the shutdown came uh, and everyone locked down and started working on Zoom, it was very natural. Um, but yeah, so, you know, for 20 years, I've been reading people's screenplays, giving feedback, uh, helping them get their scripts better, getting them into production, uh, working with production companies, uh, working with funding agencies, juries, uh, all that kind of thing. Um, and I'm a writer as well, obviously, but when I was, uh, I had my daughter, she's now 17, I kind of made the decision to be more of a teacher and a story editor than a writer. And then as she got older, um, I made the reverse decision. I'm going to stop story editing. I'm not going to do so much work on other people's scripts. And instead, I'm going to work on my own. So why was that? Like what was going on in terms of like, is it your mental capacity, your emotional state or, you know? A little, a little bit. And it's also kind of functional. You know, people always uh, wonder why kind of women drop out of the film industry, I think. And it's, um, it's you know, it's a very uncertain job. Um, you know, you don't get maternity leave, for example. Uh, you don't get pensions. You don't get medical. You don't get dental. You don't get any of the other things that make life uh, secure, especially when you have a little kid. Um, so, you know, being able to make a living is better at that stage in my life. Anyway, it was better for me than, you know, writing endless scripts that maybe wouldn't sell. Um, so, you know, for me, it was a very practical kind of decision. Um, but, you know, as she got older and she didn't need me there all the time and she became an independent entity of her own, it became easier for me to say, okay, I'm going to take a risk. And instead of doing this sure thing where I get to make money, I'm going to do something which is uh, perhaps risky, like write a novel for which there may be no audience or uh, write a screenplay and uh, see if I can find someone to buy it. So when you, like, I guess it's that concept of, when someone sits down, for example, to write a novel, you know, and then that yeah. the kind of allocation of your own one's own resources is that kind of tell is that relevant? And if so, tell can you what what's going yeah. on there for? I mean, for I you? think it is relevant. You know, I mean, it's especially I hate to say it for women. You know, it it's tough for us to say uh, I'm going to put myself first. Um, you know, especially once you have a family. Um, you know, I think a lot of women struggle with this. How do I put myself first? How do I put my art first? 
when there's the family and there's the house and there's the dinners and the dinner. And, and it's an old fashioned concept. And in fact, I'm a very lucky woman because my husband is an excellent cook and cooks most of the time. And thank God he does, because if we had to rely on my food, we'd starve. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the, when you have a family, when you have kids, particularly, um, you are making a commitment that you're going to prioritize them. And it's hard to balance that for anyone, you know, uh, to balance the needs of a family against your own needs. What's funny when I was, um, I think I was like in my thirties anyway, and uh, I had Lydia and she was, you know, quite young. So it would have been early thirties. Um, and I was struggling to write. I was struggling to find a time in the day when I could actually just sit down and write and have that time for myself. And so I interviewed a bunch of really successful screenwriters, the, the most successful screenwriters I could find. And I pitched this first as an article to a magazine and they picked, they said, yep, we're interested in that. And then I interviewed all these writers and said, okay, so when do you write? And I thought they would all be all over the shop. I thought some people would write in the evening and some people at night and some people in the morning. You know, I thought that it would be a little bit of everything. Uh, and that was not the case. Um, out of the 20 so writers that I interviewed, 18 of them started writing at 9 a.m. and wrote for a full work day. And I was like, wow, okay. So um, professional full-time writers, they are treating it like a job. But I have a kid and a teaching job and things like this, and I can't do that. So I looked at the other two, the outliers, the people who do it differently, and they were both moms. And both of them woke up really early in the morning. One of them got up at five and the other one got up at six. And they both got in a good chunk of writing time before their kids woke up. And I thought, yep, I'm going to learn from that. And I started doing that. I was getting up about 5.30. I was starting to write at six. And I was writing for a good two and a half hours before the day began, before everybody else was up. And that's how I wrote my first novel. Um, and it's here, there's a copy of it here somewhere. Um, and it was, uh, it was kind of a revelation to me that I could put myself first. All I had to give up was late night television. <laughs> and, you know, I can always record that and watch it later. Um, so I started going to bed earlier, getting up early and writing. And just that concept of putting myself and my writing first made a huge difference in my life. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So one of your projects, one of your writing projects was a, about writing a screenplay. So how did that come about? So, I mean, I've been teaching screenwriting for a long time. And one of the, one of the courses that I teach, um, nobody else wanted to teach it. It's called formatting. And it's how to lay a screenplay down on the page. Nobody else wanted it because they thought it was a boring subject. I, on the other hand, thought it was a really interesting subject because I read scripts for a living. So for me, all of the silly mistakes that people make, the things that get in the way of the reader's experience, that matters to me. It's like a building block, a building block of writing. Um, and so I really wanted to teach that class and I volunteered for it. As I was teaching it, though, I came to realize that there, was, there were very few really good materials for the course. Like There were very few books at that time that you could get that would teach you how to format a screenplay correctly. There were very few kind of handouts or samples of screenplay formatting. And the ones there were were hopelessly outdated. 
And so I made the decision to, to just write a handout. And I thought, you know, I'll write something fun because my students are young, you know, they're late teens, early 20s. And I thought, you know, I'm never going to keep their interest if I write something boring. So I'm going to write something fun about a couple of witches. Um, and uh, and they've, they've kind of murdered someone who's come back to haunt them. So that's the premise of the story. Um, and so these two witches, they're both in their kind of late teens, early 20s. Um, and, uh, and they are being haunted by a ghost that follows them around and they end up having these kind of wacky adventures. So that was the, uh, that was the premise of the story. And initially it was about eight pages long. It was not a long thing. It was just to show how to format a script, but I kept coming up with new things that I needed to add. And so I'd expand the story a bit and give an example of something else, you know, Oh, they need to know how to write a montage. Ah, I'll put a montage into the story. Oh, they need to do, uh, you know, dialogue for somebody who's on the telephone. Ah, I'll do three examples of how to do phone calls, okay. you know, that kind of thing. I want to just clarify because I'm mm -hmm. familiar with formatting, you know, if I have, say, a Word document, I'm formatting when I change the heading, might put it left or right or centred or I might bold right. it or I might put capital letters, uppercase letters, that type of thing. Yeah. Can you sort of outline what what is formatting in relation to a screen a screenplay i guess yeah absolutely i can well first of all let's talk about why you need to format your screenplay correctly because i don't know about you but i was educated by nuns and whenever you said why they always said because and i was like no it's not good enough i want to know why so i'm going to tell you why there's a few reasons and the first one is when you give someone a screenplay you're not saying you know, here's a screenplay, enjoy reading that this weekend. You're saying, here's a screenplay. I want millions of dollars in five years of your life, please. Um, and it's a big ask. So the least you can do is make your script look like a script. And traditionally, screenplays were written on typewriters. And when I say traditionally, I'm talking about old school Hollywood. People wrote screenplays on typewriters. There was an organization called Barbara's Place on Hollywood Boulevard. And Barbara and her typists would type up the screenplays that people were making in the 30s and 40s. And they typed them up in a particular way with a lot of white space, with a lot of you know, extra, extra space on either side so that you'd have about one page per minute of screen time. And that's the estimate that we're going for always, especially with features. Uh, we're looking for one page a minute of screen time. So that ratio is one of the other reasons why we format a screenplay in a particular way. The third reason is that you really want to be able to communicate. When you're reading a good book, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this all the time. You forget yourself. You forget that you're reading. You forget that it's a book. You forget that you're turning pages. You're just in. You're in the experience. Um, and that defines a good book. It doesn't matter which genre it is. It doesn't matter whether it's a classic or not. If you forget yourself, that means it's good. And screenplays are like that too. But every time you make a mistake, in formatting or grammar or spelling or punctuation, it jars people out. So ideally, you're creating an experience where they can lose themselves. And using correct formatting can do that because it's familiar. It's the way a screenplay should look. And so people just relax and they listen to the story. So they, yeah, uh, they're they really to know the characters. They're listening to that story, but then it's kind of like a mm -hmm. functional document. It's like it's a work, mm -hmm. work document almost, like it's, it's got a purpose within a context. It's not yeah. just for reading for pleasure for the person. Oh. Re who reads a screenplay? Who, what type of people? 
it's a tricky thing. Well, people like me, you know, I mean, we are the gatekeepers um, at the bottom. I always think about it like a pyramid, you know, the pyramid of development. Uh, a pyramid might be a studio, or it might be a production company, um, or it might be a funding agency in the case of some of us countries where, you know, they give money to filmmakers. At the bottom of the pyramid are a whole bunch of unproduced screenplays. There are lots of them out there. Lots of people write screenplays and most of them are terrible. <laughs> um, but somebody has to read them. Somebody has to read them and go, no, or read them and go, well, maybe. Um, so those readers, sometimes they're outside readers like me, or they might be the assistant to the head of development, or they might be the producer's assistant. And they read scripts so that they can reject them. And so they'll read them, read them, read them, and they come across a good one and they go, oh, this one's good. And they pass it up the line to the producer or the head of development. And that person reads that script and they go, oh, I like this one. Yes, this is good. And then they option it. And optioning is like calling dibs on the front seat when you're a kid and your parents are in the car. You know, you want to be in that front seat. That's what they do. They call dibs on the screenplay. They give the writer a little bit of money um, to hold the script for a year or so until they can figure out whether they can make it or not. And during that period, it's called development. During that period, they might try and cast some stars, attach them to the project. They might try and raise some money. They might try and attack, attract a director. Um, and also they're gonna pay the writer to do rewrites. So during that period, they might work with a story editor. Again, someone like me. So there, is a, there are a few people who act like gatekeepers between people who have unproduced screenplays and filmmakers who actually go and then make that film. Okay, so I wanna give you an example just from the beginning of the dreaded curse. Uh, this is called the dreaded curse, screenplay formatting for film and television. And this is the book that my handout became. It's not eight pages anymore. Now it's, uh, I don't know how many pages it is now, like a hundred, something like that. And it contains a feature film section, uh, a one hour drama section, multi-cam sitcom section and a single cam comedy section. And the reason it's divided into those sections is because they're all formatted a little bit differently. So I'll start with just an example of the first section, which is about feature films. So this is, uh, this is called The Dreaded Curse, Screenplay Formatting Feature Film. And on the very first title page, the, the title is in the center and it's capitalized. It has the author's name right after, and then it says first draft, it says based on, if it's based on somebody else's material and so forth. The next page, we have fade in, interior haunted manor house dining room night, an old fashioned dark red dining room, features a large oak table, carved chairs, candles and mirrors. Hazel, 24, an intense witch in a black dress and Rosetta, 22, a cute hipster sister, clink their wine glasses and drink. Before them sits a beautifully cooked meal. Hazel pours herself another glass of wine. Hazel, could you tell me what you've learned at film school about formatting screenplays? I have a great idea for a horror film. Rosetta, is it about witches? Hazel, no way, no one believes in witches. Vampires are over. No, it's called zombie romance. Rosetta, okay, some stuff I remember. Screenplays are always in the present tense. The first time you introduce a character in description, you capitalize the name, indicate the age, and give a very brief description. Rosetta serves the food. Hazel takes the large gulp of her wine. What about fonts? Rosetta. Screenplay fonts should look like typewriter font, so Courier 12. I have an awesome handout somewhere. I think I emailed it to myself. 
Rosetta shows Hazel an email from rosetta at witch.gov. No subject line, simple text, formatting handout. Rosetta, ah, oh, there's no attachment. Hazel pulls out a wand. Don't worry, I'll put a spell on you to remember it in detail and tell it to me. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Hazel hits Rosetta with her wand. There's a flash of light and a bang. A puff of smoke lingers. Okay, margins. Rosetta, around 1.5 inches or 3.5 centimeters. So that's just kind of a little taste of the first section. And the whole book works like this. It, it is a, a book about a couple of witches who have a contretemps with a ghost, but it's mostly about screenwriting. So every time there is a different way of formatting something, I can show you on the page what that looks like because the entire book looks like a script. Mm. The, the other sections are a little bit different because television doesn't have the one page a minute ratio. Television now is more like 1.5 page, uh, pages per minute. And part of the reason for that is television showrunners are their own bosses. And so they include a lot more camera direction stuff. So feature writers are not supposed to include camera directions, but television writers can. And that makes their scripts a little bit longer and a little bit more technically detailed. So you've taken like the the kind of a little story as such, but then the characters themselves are kind of like embodying sort of like uh, learning outcomes in a way, learning intentions, because your aim yes. is to teach students or others how a format, how to format a screenplay. And then so that it's almost like a self-referential or something of that nature. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I wanted it to be entertaining, but it is a reference guide. It's not the kind of thing I expect you to remember everything. It's the kind of thing that you'll read and then hopefully some of it will stick and the rest of it, there's an index in the back for exactly that purpose. So when you're looking for telephone calls, you can look at the index and go, oh, okay, I see an example of a telephone conversation. And it shows you how to format it correctly. So in um, other, so with, with that yeah, example, sorry. you've got a telephone yeah. conversation between two people, two characters in the story. Mm -hmm. So how does one format a telephone conversation? Just as a, just a so simple version. You know, it's a good example. There's three different ways, right? So you can do it the old school way where you'll see one person. Let's say I'm seeing you, Mark Perry, and you are going to pick up the phone. So the phone rings. Uh, Mark picks it up. Mark, hi, who's there? In parentheticals, you'll get the word beat. And that means there's space for another person to talk. And then you'll say, wow, I can't believe it. Beat. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I'll be right there. Mark hangs up and runs out, right? So that's a one-sided telephone conversation. Um, and it's you talking it to somebody. That we way. Yeah, we hear can't them hear them, right? I'm talking to now no there's, one. there's a couple of alternatives. We could also, we could have that same telephone conversation, but we can see you and we can hear both sides. In that case, the other person would be their name and then OS and then filtered and then whatever they say. So we get to hear your dialogue and we get to hear their dialogue, OS, filtered. OS means off screen and filtered means through the medium of the phone, right? Then there's a third different way of having a telephone conversation. And this one's my favorite by far because it's the easiest way. This one, we're going to set you up. So interior, Mark Parry's recording studio day. Mark Parry sits at his desk. The telephone rings. Uh, Mark picks it up. Hello. And then interior, Cat's office day. Uh, Cat is on the phone to Mark. And then 
from that moment on, we can run the conversation as if we're both in the same space. So we don't have to keep having new scene headings every time we change location. We can just run the conversation. And that's very handy. And the only thing that makes it possible is the words intercut with, because they're going to shoot your side of the conversation and then they're going to shoot my side of the conversation. And then in the editing room, they're going to cut back and forth between them. So you need those words intercut with in caps on the right-hand margin with a colon right between setting up your scene and setting up my scene. Okay, so when I first started trying to figure out what the rules were, I decided the only way to do this was to read a lot of screenplays. So for this book and for the handouts that came before it, I read a lot of screenplays in each particular area. So for example, I used about 15 screenplays to figure out the rules for uh, feature film formatting. And they would always be modern screenplays and successful screenplays. So things that might have been nominated for Oscars or Writers Guild Awards, that kind of thing. Same thing with the television sections. So I used about 10 recent television shows that were one hour to do the one hour section and so on. And one of the things that I do, which I, I enjoy, but it's also useful, is I keep track of how things change. Because if there's one thing you know about formatting, it will change over time. Um, so every year or two, I'll go in and I'll read a whole bunch of new scripts. Okay, are the rules the same? Has anything changed? And if it has changed, it changes in my book, which is why there's going an ebook version coming, which is going to be constantly up to date. And things, things, weird things change. Like you didn't used to have to have bold scene headings, but now suddenly people are starting to bold their scene headings. Why? I don't know. They just are. And the fact that most of the successful screenwriters are starting to do it means we should start to do it. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. I really like how it's a combination of it's fun and a bit silly, but it's also really sensible and it's informed by, as they say, informed by industry practice, that type of thing. And so to have something that is combining lots of elements and it's it's still a purposeful working document, it's a, it's a teaching resource, really. Um, I think it's, it's really impressive. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I made it for myself to teach and it's become something that other people use to teach. And I really appreciate that. You know, I just got a, a, a phone call from my publisher today saying that a university has, has ordered 150 copies of it for their, for their students uh, who are studying screenwriting. And that, that to me is a, that's what I was looking for from this. Like it was never going to be a huge seller. It's a niche market, people who want to write screenplays. It's not, I'm not going to be the next J.K. Rowling, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not that. Um, but, you know, for people who do what I do, teaching screenwriting, um, there wasn't a really good book for this. There wasn't a good resource. And I needed it. So I wrote it for myself. Um, and I think those are the, my favorite kinds of projects, my favorite kinds of books, when people just write them for themselves because they found a need for it and they wanted to make it fun. Uh, and I love that you find it silly. I, I do too. I mean, I wrote it that way on purpose. It gets very silly when they make it to Hollywood, the witches. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's supposed to be jokey. Um, it's supposed to be kind of a, 
just a fun thing that enables you to learn something really that you need to know, but without making it feel like hard work. Um, so for me, that matters. The other thing that I like about it and the fact that I got to really think about this in the, in the, the writing of the final text for the book is that it talks about structure. And structure is one of those things that writers, I think they're, they're a little bit wary of when they start writing. Novelists tend to avoid discussion of structure. Uh, they, they like us to feel that they've just sat down at a typewriter and, and written it all down. It came out of the end of their fingers and they never plan any of it. Um, but the reality for most writers is that we do plan. Uh, you know, we plan the structure of the story. We plan the roller coaster ride that the audience is going to go on when they read something or when they watch a movie, when they watch a television episode. Um, they, the writer knows what that roller coaster ride is going to be like, how it's going to feel. And we plan it on purpose because we, you know, that's our, job, that's our job. Um, so for me, understanding that I think is a really key um, transition for writers from being a writer who's a hobbyist to being a writer who's a professional writer who, who works in a format uh, where you can make a living, particularly in television. You know, television structure is everything. They're not going to give you an extra half hour for your episode of TV just because you want it. Um, you know, you have to work within the confines of, of the time they give you. It's, right, it's like writing a sonnet. You know, when you write a sonnet, you know what the outline is. You know what the parameters of a sonnet are, the rules. And within that, you can pour your creativity. And that's what it's like being a screenwriter. You know what the parameter is. If it's a feature, it's got to be around two hours. If it's a television episode, it's either going to be 22 minutes or 44 minutes. Um, and within that parameter, um, you've got to deal with commercial breaks if you're dealing with a network show. So you're building your roller coaster ride around those breaks um, and understanding that structure and yet being able to tell a delightful story or making people laugh or being silly or making people gasp or cry uh, is an art. Uh, and I know some people think screenwriting is less of an art than other kinds of writing. I know they think that. I think it's more difficult um, because you have so many, so many parameters that you have to stick within. Um, if you can do uh, this amazing job and make people feel something um, and stick within the parameters of structure, uh, that's kind of amazing to me. Is that um, how do people go like creative creative people? Do they sometimes feel like crushed by these parameters, or you know <laughs> what what's going on there? It's interesting because I mean the, it it really depends who they are. Like by the time I get film school students, they have already made peace with it. They are coming to study screenwriting for a year because they know this is the thing for them. So they're pretty fine with that. University students are a little bit different because they come from other disciplines. Some of them are novelists, some of them are, you know, political science students. They, they come from all these different disciplines. So when they come into my class and I'm like, this is how to tell a screen story. And I start explaining structure. They look at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> um, but then I start saying, okay, well, let's look at one of your favorite shows or one of your favorite films. Let's look at the structure of it. Let me show you how it's built. And when you reverse engineer something that they know and love like that, it becomes clear. And then they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, cool. Um, can you talk us through? Really can you talk us through a quick little example of something like a, you know, like a so sitcom it, or something, you know, yeah, just something okay, that's like a sitcom. 
So you start a sitcom with a little, a little bit of a, a, a teaser, like there's a little bit at the beginning. It's usually about two minutes long. Um, and it's just a thing to set up the premise of the show, right? It's just to get you, okay, this, I understand these characters. I know this world because I've watched this show before, but this is going to be the premise of this episode. And then you have your first commercial break. Your first act is going to be developing that premise, making things more complicated. Obviously, it's got to be funny. It's a sitcom. You have to have a laugh a minute at least. Um, and then you're moving into uh, a big conflict section. So at the end of that first act, um, you need to end it on a joke, but you also need to end it on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? How is this going to resolve? And the audience needs to feel like they have to know because <laughs> that brings them back from their commercial break, right? So after the commercial break, you come back and that's when the main character has to do the most heavy lifting. They've got to find a way to resolve this. They've got to confront people and they've got to, you know, to really uh, stretch themselves in order to make a resolution for the problem that you've set themselves up to. Sometimes screenwriters talk about this as painting your character into a corner. You paint them into the corner. How the hell are they going to get out? Right. And that's going to make for a fun, we call it the fun and games section, which is kind of into the third act where they're really struggling and they have to fight to get out. Um, and, you know, hopefully you come up with a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of a climactic, a climactic scene, something which is exciting and dramatic and also quite visual. Um, so you might have, if it's a comedy, you might have slapstick or you might have pratfalls, you might have a spit take, you might have something a little bit visual. And then you have a little tag at the end and it's usually very short, maybe a page. And it just gives you a chance to give you that final laugh. You know, and it's usually a payoff for something you set up earlier. So you might have a running gag where the same thing happens a couple of times. This will be that third beat. So it's uh, it sounds like um, what's the right word? Manipulative. And that's it does. It, is. <laughs> it does sound manipulative. That's because it, it is manipulative. We are deliberately manipulating you so that you'll be sitting at home and you'll laugh. Uh, that's what it's for. Um, and it's fun, you know, it's fun to get the response from the audience that you hope for. You know, I mean, we are all, I think, writers for television. A lot of us are frustrated stand-up comedians um, and they are the same. They thrive on the laughter of the audience, the, the, the evoking a feeling in the crowd. Um, and that's what television writers do too. We want people to have a response to what we do and react. And that's the way we build it. And, and fingers crossed, it'll be successful. Television sitcom writers are interesting, though, because they get a chance to see whether it works or not, because they have a table reading before they shoot the show. Um, they'll sit down, all of the actors, at a long table, and they read the script aloud. And the question is, is it funny enough? There's actually one person whose job it is to make all of it funnier. Their name is the punch-up artist. And they, um, if a joke doesn't land, like it's not funny, uh, the punch-up artist gets to rewrite that joke uh, before they film the show. So you still have one more chance to get it right. Um, and then you're filming in front of a live audience for the most part when you're doing sitcom. So they, they know very quickly whether it's funny or not. And the audience is, you know, yeah, they're primed. There's a warm-up artist to make them laugh before the show begins taping. Um, but, you know, you're hoping to get the big laughs exactly where you planned them. I'd imagine that the writers would need a certain degree of resilience. 
<laughs> um, yeah, it's funny though. I mean, I find television fascinating because I came up in the world of feature films for the most part. I've written a little bit of television though, but I, I know a lot of television writers now and I work with a lot of television writers. And what I like about them is that they work in rooms together collaboratively in a way that other writers really don't. So you might have anything from four to 10 writers in a room writing a television series. And they, um, they are masters of uh, yes and, you know, some of them makes a suggestion. You don't go, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Instead you say, yeah, and, and, you, and then you, and you riff off that. And then maybe the next idea is gonna be the good one or the one after that. And they're very supportive of each other, I find television writers. Sometimes someone will say something and everyone goes, oh no, <laughs> that's terrible. But, but they do it in a loving, jokey way. And it's, um, it's really sweet actually to witness. Um, they're collaborative in, a, in, a, in the way that a, a comedy troupe is, in the way that a, you know, a, a group of theater players might be. Um, and you know, everyone's goal is the same, is to make this work and make it funny and make the audience laugh and make it enjoyable. Um, so, you know, that aspect of it, that collaborative aspect of television writing is I think one of the things the audience at home don't know about. It's kind of a secret thing. They just assume it got written that way somehow, but it's usually a group of people in a room working together. So what to, what would people, if they are going to, if they're interested in this sort of territory, what, what, uh, what advice, I guess, do you give your students? Okay, well, first of all, I say read a bunch of scripts. You know, there are some fantastic websites that have screenplays on them, um, things like Daily Script or uh, Scriptorama, or, you know, there's a, there's a great website. Uh, Lee Thompson has a lot of television scripts on his website. Um, they're great places to go and find out more about screenwriting. And then, you know, write something on your own before you, you know, before you start collaborating with other people, just give it a try. So write a feature. Uh, it's called a spec feature. Speculative means no one has bought it yet. Um, and you're going to try and write that on your own. You can also write a, a pilot for TV. So you would write the first episode of a television series. And you could do a, a half hour sitcom or you could do a one hour drama. You could do a mystery series or detective show police procedural. There's lots of different genres that you could try. And the most important thing to figure out fairly early is what kind of writer are you? What kind of things do you like to write? Sometimes the things we like are not the things we're the best at. You know, for example, I, I'm a huge comedy fan, but I could never be a sitcom writer. I am a drama writer through and through. Uh, and so figuring that out about myself really let me narrow my focus to the things that I could be good at. And it's good to figure that out about yourself. Who are you as a writer? And what do you really love? So, I mean, my advice, you know, if you're going to write your first screenplay would be come up with some concepts. You know, people say ideas are cheap. And they're right. Ideas are cheap. People have a lot of ideas. Um, and you can't copyright an idea. No one's going to buy an idea from you. It's when you put it down on the page and turn it into a script. So, first of all, I would say write some short scripts. A good concept for a short script is the crossroads in somebody's life. So when someone makes a decision to make a change in their life, that's a great subject matter. Uh, and think about something with a short timeline, you know, like a weekend. You know, someone goes through something over the weekend that changes everything. That would make a good short script. And the good thing about short scripts is they use the same format as a feature film. So it's really a fairly simple concept. Um, so it's a master, it's really enjoyable, um, and it's one page a minute. 
So you could try and write that down as a screenplay. And then you can even get together with your friends and make it into a film. You know, everyone now has a smartphone or pretty much everyone. A smartphone is a better camera than the first film, make, uh, the ca first film camera I used to make a movie with. Um, you know, they're excellent. You can make a short film with your iPhone um, and edit it on drag and drop software. And it's not that hard and it's kind of fun. So I would say do that, write something, make it into a film, figure out whether you enjoyed it, keep going. In this episode, I chatted with Kat Montague, a screenwriter and instructor. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including links to more information about The Dreaded Curse, screenplay formatting for film and television. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.